Welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. On Tarkovsky's Stalker, Part 2. I think probably because of seeing Stalker, I've had a lifelong fascination with zones where the usual rules seem to have been suspended where something marvelous is possible. Well, I mean, just what we were talking about. And there are a few different fictions of zones in this same sense. One of them is a novel called Dahlgren by Samuel Delaney. Have you ever read mm. this? I have, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then you know what I'm talking about. Because, okay, so the novel Dahlgren is about a city called Bologna, and some never-explained catastrophe or disaster has befallen it, and almost everybody has left the city. And it's just a normal-ass city. I imagine it as being a place like Indianapolis, you know, just a normal kind of place. I think it is in the Midwest in in the, the narrative. Yeah, I always imagine yeah. Indianapolis when I read it. Uh, but the, the point is that almost everybody has left, and the only people who are still there are either too dumb or too crazy to leave. Some of them are people who lived there before, and some of them, like the main character, the kid, are people who actually have come to Bologna after this disaster because they want to be... In this zone. And it's very much like the zone in Stalker. Weird shit can happen. Time can go backwards. A house that's burned down one day can be back up and whole and undamaged the next. There's a memorable moment where the clouds part and there's not one but two moons in the sky, which everybody is sort of surprised by, but not really. And nobody ever try nobody ever asks, geez, how is this possible? It's just one of those things that happens in Bologna. There's a foreword to Dahlgren by William Gibson. William right? Gibson. And I really, I really love what he writes here. And I'm, this is the thing I want to read. And he says this, I place Dahlgren in this history. No one under 35 today can remember the singularity that overtook America in the 1960s, and the generation that experienced it most directly seems largely to have opted for amnesia and denial. But something did happen. A city came to be in America. And I imagine I use America here as a shorthand for something else, perhaps for the industrialized nations of the American century. This city had no specific locale, and its internal geography was mainly fluid. Its inhabitants nonetheless knew, at any given instant, whether they were in the city or in America. The city was largely invisible to America. If America was about home and work, the city was about neither, and that made the city very difficult for America to see. There may have been those who wished to enter that city, having glimpsed it in the distance, but who found themselves baffled and turned back. Many others, myself included, rounded a corner one day and found it spread before them, a territory of inexpressible possibilities, a place remembered from no dream at all. 
we would find that there were rules there as well, but they would be different rules. Down one half-familiar street, and then another, and perhaps we came to a park. It proved to be possible to die in the city, and no book was ever kept of the names of those dead. Many survived there, but did not return. Some said that those who did return had never quite been there. But for those who remained, something else gradually happened. The membrane eroded, America and the city seeping into one another, until today there is no America and there is no city, only something born from their intermingling. I would not suggest that Dahlgren is any sort of map of that city, intentional or otherwise, but that they bear some undeniable relationship. Those who would prefer to forget the city say that it produced no true literature, but that too is denial. In Dahlgren, the unmediated experience of the singularity has survived, free of all corrosion of nostalgia. And then he writes, I'm sorry, this is a long excerpt, but I just, I find this a very powerful passage. When I think of Dahlgren, I remember this. A night in DuPont Circle, Washington, D.C., amid conditions of civil riot, when someone, as the police arrived with their staves and plastic shields, tossed a Molotov cocktail up into the shallow stone bowl of the Admiral's memorial goblet. The district's lesser monuments were often in decay, and the circle's tall fountain had stood dry for however many summers, and I suppose trash had accumulated there, mostly paper, crumpled Dixie cups tossed up by children making baskets and imaginary hoops. I did not hear the bottle shatter, only the explosive intake of gasoline igniting, flames throwing black shadows against the concrete, our shadows running. We were all running, and in the eyes of a Kennedy-jawed girl from the Virginia suburbs, I would see something I had never seen before. A feral shiver, a bright wet shard of ancient light called panic, where dread and ecstasy commingled utterly. And then the first canisters fell, trailing gas, and she was off, running, like a deer, and in that moment, as beautiful. And I ran after her, and lost her, and sometimes I imagine she is running still. Several years later, settling into the long slow of the pre-punk 70s when Dahlgren was first published, I remember being simply frequently grateful to Delaney for so powerfully confirming that certain states had ever been experienced at all by anyone. The flame-lit park already so far behind. Gibson's introduction is um, as high a literary achievement as the book that follows, I've always thought. And he's touching on something absolutely central, I think, not just to Dahlgren and to Gibson's own vision. I think he's a phenomenal artist, but also to Tarkovsky and his film Stalker, which is that a zone is always, as you've pointed out, a place of new potentialities, a place where potentialities that are ordinarily occluded from the field of the possible come to the fore and suddenly gain traction subjectively to us as we enter it. Another thing that I love about Dahlgren is the epigraph of the book, which I, 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 I read it like 10 times in a row when I first read it. I couldn't believe it was written. The epigraph is simply, you have confused the true and the real. That to me is such a profound statement. And I think that that's what Gibson's talking about in that introduction. There's a way to see the 60s as just a historical series of events that 
came to nothing or that transformed into something else. There was let's let's call it the counterculture. The let's call it let's call it a cultural revolution. Okay, that's putting it in that's that's putting it in grandiose terms. But let's call it let's say that in the sixties there was works. a cult. It does work. I think there was a cultural revolution, and the revolution ultimately failed because you know all in the family reflected back the images of revolution to the suburbs and basically the, the hippies were turned into yuppies slowly inex- inexorably and that the the system absorbed and in f- the revolution failed the, that's one way of reading time and history and how things function how how the world works another way is to look at the cultural revolution not just as an instance in a series of causes and effects but as a thing in itself so the becoming revolutionary that the cultural revolution enacted, that becoming revolutionary, that moment where the potentialities became real, that moment has a reality that has nothing to do with truth, with historical truth in the sense of factual truth. It has its own realness. And the city that the cultural revolution of the 60s brought into being, the kind of... Uh, you know, a better word than city would be would be church, but church in the in the in the theological sense. A church is a community that's not bounded by space. A church is a community that arises spontaneously from an event across time and space. So that in Catholic theology, the present church and the pastors are one thing. It's one event, right? It's like one thing that transcends the historical clock time of chrono- chronology. So that the city that arose in the sixties exists in itself. And the Dahlgren is an artifact of that city, a kind of a cipher of that city, which one can access by reading the book. And that every becoming that history occasions has also, in its very becoming, its own being, its own realness, so that the potential is real. Whether that potential, whether the revolutions fail or succeed is immaterial to the reality of revolution itself, of the change, the great change, the great um, upsetting of the possible as we've come to understand it in our limited perspective. And the zone in Stalker is very much a place, a zone of indeterminacy, a zone where what we think is possible proves to be ultimately a false idea, a mistake, and that we don't have enough information to decide on what the universe is capable of. And that, of course, that idea is embodied in the final scene where Monkey, the little girl, performs a kind of uh, a feat of telekinesis by pushing the glasses telekinetically to the edge of the table. What Tarkovsky is, is telling us, I think, on one level is, is this, is that the professor and the writer, their apprehensions of reality are not adequate to what reality ultimately is. And the zone is where you see that. A zone is where you touch that. You, you, you come to feel it. Got a number of thoughts in my head right now. I'm trying to decide which one to... Let me ask you a question. If you're thinking about the zone, you know, for example, the city that Gibson is describing in his foreword to Dahlgren, you see it as something that has its own being, 
not thinking of it then in the commonplace way that we think of things like the 60s as a period of time where certain things happened and certain other things didn't, and it turned into the 70s and turned into the 80s, etc., and here we are. But you think of that as something that has its own being. It is almost, in a way, sealed off from before and after. It's a little bit like the temporality uh, that Dogen is on about when he's talking about how firewood doesn't become ash. That firewood is firewood. It is in its own, and there's an almost untranslatable word that he uses for it, but it, I saw it once translated as dharma position, which doesn't really mean anything. You could just make up a word, but that, you know, whatever word you want to use to describe it, it's just like the reality of a period of time or, or a zone delimited by time uh, instead of or as well as space that those limits don't pass away simply because time moves on. Those limits, in a sense, remain. That remains a bounded whole. Okay, if we think of the city in that way, can you visit it? Uh, yeah, you can visit it. Bergson had this beautiful theory of time that I've mentioned before where the past exists. The past isn't something that doesn't exist. We tend to think that the past doesn't exist, but we also believe that the past is very important. Like in a court of law, it's very important to determine what happened. But what happened isn't real now. It's not something you can touch or feel or verify. But it's there. And if the past is somehow preserved, not in the chronological form of time that we, that we abstra abstract out of our experience, but in that durational subjective time that we actually experience below our thoughts, or it includes our thoughts, but at, the, at, the, at a, a more intuitive level, if the past is somehow preserved, then the city exists. The city's effects can still be felt. Uh -huh. And in fact, there, there are things in happening now around you that might make sense if you're conscious of what the city is. Uh -huh. Like the city is still this force exerting. Like just the concept of a zone in itself. What is a zone? Well, a zone is a, it's not any part of a place. It's a place. It's not the trees in a place. It's, it's somehow the sum total of all of these elements that produce a spirit of place, uh, a zone, you know, like in the sense of like the, the Romans believe that, you know, most cultures believe that particular rivers or groves of trees were inhabited by a spirit. And that if you were to cut down all the trees and remove it, you, you would probably kill that spirit but that spirit didn't reside in any particular aspect of that place it was just the place itself mm -hmm. but so a place is not something you can define really you can't really point to its elemental components you can only look at it as a sum total and yet it's real so there are, there are events in the past maybe there are realities for example the cultural revolution of the 60s perceived as a, a place outside of time, not just a particular instance in the, the endless morbid parade of history, not, not a particular station in that, but its own thing in itself. If that can somehow exist on its own, well, yeah, then its effects can be felt, it can be visited, it can be lived, it can be revived. It's funny because I, um, I was a teenager in the 1990s. And I was, I was like I mentioned before, I was a, I was part of a kind of hippie revival that happened in the in the '90s, and I really believed that I lived in the '60s on some level. Hmm. Like I, I believed that that uh, I, there was this this um, 
I guess this atavistic or anachronistic aesthetic that we, my friends and I embraced and we were part, I mean, we had a band, we had, there were other bands, there was a whole scene where we were living out a world that had passed, but we were, we lived it very, it was, felt it was very real to us. It didn't mean that I don't, I'm not saying I had a time machine. I went back to the sixties, but right. I'm saying that some, some aesthetic trace, some expression remains accessible even after something has passed. That's what Nietzsche meant by the untimely. The untimely is, is that essence that splits off from just an accident. An accident will split off into an essence that remains real. Christianity is all built out of that. The event of Christ's life and resurrection and all that is an event that's happening all the time. It's not just something that happened in history. It happens now. Northrop Fry says the apocalypse is what reality looks like when the ego falls away. So mm. the apocalypse isn't an event in the future, in the chronological future. It's an event that's happening now. And that's kind of what I, I see in Tarkovsky's film. Like when I was saying that the zone is both the beginning and the end of time. It's a non-chronological, non-linear time, a time of the eternal, the untimely, as Nietzsche understood it, that's always there, but can only be accessed virtually. You can't access it actually. You can't measure it like a physicist would. You can't, you can't enumerate its qualities. It's something that produces quality, that produces uh, reality, but it's not something... You see, all, yeah. of this, all of this makes sense to me most easily if I think about the past, an interval of time, a historical moment, as being an entity, as something that has an intelligence, a mind... And this is exactly what the zone is for Tarkovsky. This is, in fact, one of the biggest differences between Tarkovsky's zone and the zone of roadside picnic. Because you never get the impression, not once, at least I don't, reading roadside picnic, that the zone itself is intelligent. Although, no, that's not quite true, because Red, the stalker in roadside picnic, often talks to and about the zone as if it was a uh, an entity of malicious destructiveness um, a kind of bitch goddess that he's powerless ultimately to resist or or to to uh, to deny but that sense of an entity is much much stronger in Tarkovsky's zone because it is said explicitly and we see explicitly how the zone changes in response to the people who are in it. How, for example, the zone is able to tell whether somebody has well and truly lost hope. So, you know, the, the writer and scientist, they're shallow, superficial creatures. I mean, they are, I think, kind of, among other things, excellent satirical figures of modern people. You know, they're modernity in single-sized portions, right? Um, and yet the zone lets them through because the zone can tell that they have one very important thing which is they're utterly without hope which if you think about that that actually is kind of the good news of modernity right modernity is a sort of vast trap for leeching hope and happiness out of us uh but you know the the plus side is no matter how how fucked up you are how embittered how selfish how vain how caught up with nonsense and trivialities, the daily distractions of the news cycle, 
you have something very valuable in you, which is despair, true, authentic despair, that that's actually a valuable thing because that is a true human emotion. That's a true appetite. That's a, that is not something that has been made as a product for you. <laughs> You can't can despair, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when you have it, it's the realest thing you know, right? But getting back to my point, you know, the zone knows who has despair and it likes those people. Those are the zone's favorite. Well, there's no sense of the zone picking and choosing. There's no sense of the zone spontaneously reforming in order to deal with the specific people that it comes in contact with. There's none of that in the novel. But that, to me, is perhaps the most important thing about the zone, is that it's an entity. So getting back to you talking about like this particular period of time at a particular place with a particular group of people who are all on a very particular trip this kind of neo-60s thing in Toronto in the 90s that you were a part of. You know, you said, well, I'm not saying that I had a time machine and I went back to the 60s, but there's a, some sense in which we were inhabiting a zone that had been first laid down in the 60s, and we found it just sitting there waiting for us. We turned a corner one day, just like William Gibson says, and there it was. And... That makes sense to me when I think about it in Tarkovsky's terms. It's like yeah. there is this intelligence, you know, the intelligence or the personality. I of think the that's zone a... remains. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. I think I think that's 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 like a keynote of the film. You can feel this when you watch it. I find I don't know if you'll agree, but that the zone is contemplating itself through the film. That the camera, the perspective of the camera, in a sense, I feel like every shot in Stalker is a POV shot. A point of view shot and that slow dolly up to that rusty truck and there's a corpse in the truck and it goes right up to the window and then frames our travelers as they, they come into frame and, and, and enter the zone proper that shot to me is from the perspective of the zone itself it's like you know that shot in film where mm. you cut to a pov shot but you haven't seen what's you haven't seen the subject of the shot yet you haven't seen what is look what is watching so it's a shot that's often used in the wilderness. So you'll have uh, our heroes will be walking down this trail through this forest. And all of a sudden you cut to a POV shot through the leaves of something watching them. But you don't know what's watching them yet. Or, or it can be like a shitty 80s horror film and you hear heavy breathing and it's like this shaky cam. Yeah, but already you're, you're breaking, you're breaking that, that magic by adding the breathing and the shaky cam. It's in, it's in the... The right. absolute, un, absolutely unrepresented quality of of the shot. Like there's no, there's no representation of what is watching. Yeah. It's a, just a bare subjectivity. We can say nothing about it yeah. except that it perceives that things are happening within its field of perception. I feel that um, throughout the the color portions of the soccer, that the camera is the zone watching, and that the zone is experiencing itself yeah. through these characters even as these characters experience themselves through yeah. the zone, that there's this complete undoing or dismantling of the ultimately artificial boundary between self and world. That when you enter the zone, what belongs to the object and what belongs to you, these two categories that we neatly separate in our conceptual thought normally uh, is gone. And you're experiencing things directly. 
That reminds me of another story that The Zone really harkens back to, um, H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Color Out of Space. I've written about that story before, and there's more in that story that I came to see by watching Stalker again and thinking back on that story. So Lovecraft's story, Color Out of Space, is, is the story of a meteorite that lands in someplace in New England, and the meteorite contains a, an alien intelligence that creates the zone that's now impenetrable. And um, the protagonist is this land surveyor who's going in to, you know, to just size up an area because they're going to build a reservoir for the uh, these urban centers that are growing nearby. He encounters this alien. And the alien, strangely, is a color. It is a color. That's what it is. That's its essence. It's a color. But it's a color that no human has ever seen. So when humans see it, they see it as this this absolute aberration, right? This total breaking of every rule. But what's interesting is that he chose to make it a color. Lovecraft was a smart dude, and he knew that color belonged to what John Locke called the secondary qualities. Science has never, ever, ever argued, well, except in Goethe, maybe, and in, in some you know, aberrant scientists on, on the fringes, uh, science has never argued that color has intrinsic reality. Color is just something your brain does, right? With uh, light waves right. or whatever. And yeah. yet... There is no way to define this thing in Lovecraft's story except by calling it a color. So basically what Lovecraft mm -hmm. is telling us is that what we call secondary qualities are already present before we come into the picture. That they have their own mm -hmm. reality. And that's, that's where yeah. the boundary between self and world, between the self-contained, autonomous, closed subject, the buffered self that you talked about before, the buffered self and the cosmos, that's where that boundary collapses. And all of a sudden... The aliens don't need to be little green men anymore, or even colors for that matter. The aliens become us. And that's very clear at the end yeah. of Stalker. At the end of Stalker, when they're at the threshold of the room, and it's at the moment where they need to decide whether, whether they'll go into this magical room or not, where wishes come true, where it becomes clear through their dialogue that it's not any old wish that comes true in the room. It's your innermost wish. So no matter what you think you want, what you really want is what will come true in the room. However, you don't know what you really want. You can't because mm -hmm. it's, at one point he says, your innermost wish comes from your essence of which you know nothing. So in other words, mm. <laughs> by stepping into the room, you are basically relinquishing the whole illusion, the whole, the, the whole belief structure in which you can still believe to have some kind of autonomous self that is completely separate from the cosmos. That the force that will come into being through you in the room is something that can only come from you because it's your essence, but it's something that you cannot know. So the alienness, the alienation of the human, the marriage of the human and the non-human is consummated at the point where that's revealed. And therefore they don't go into the room because they don't want to lose that. It's interesting what you say, this idea that secondary qualities actually have some kind of primary reality, color, for example. To use an example that I know you've used in the past, it ultimately comes from Blake. You know, Blake will say, when you look at the sun, you see a disc about the size of a guinea, a gold disc about the size of a guinea. When I see it, I see a heavenly host. Well, think actually these days when we look at the sun, we're likely to look at it. And because we've all taken science in school, we say, well, it's a, uh, an enormous 
ball of gas in a state of continuous nuclear reaction. It's a vast atomic explosion happening in space, and we are basking in the heat from that uh, explosion. And then the customary thing would be to say, like, well, if it looks like a gold coin, that's just because you as a human being are familiar with coins. You see a gold disc in the sky, you're going to connect it to something you know, but that doesn't say anything about the sun. It just says about something about your own society and culture, your upbringing, the fact that there are round, shiny, metallic things called coins, right? But what you're suggesting is that the similitude between the sun and a shiny gold coin, or for that matter, a heavenly host, that those aren't necessarily poetic fancies, mere metaphors, that that is actually a statement of something true about the object as such. Am I getting you right? Yeah, that's what uh, that's what I'm saying. That's that's what I think Tarkovsky's saying. <laughs> that is a thought that I that is a thought that I think is legit hard for moderns. It to is. Think. You know, getting back to like, what is this podcast about? interested in ideas that for whatever reason are hard to think that's an idea that's hard for me to think which isn't the same thing as me saying i think it's nonsense it actually makes it more fun to think about because it's a bit of a challenge but if we but if we go with it for a second and we say okay maybe there's something to that maybe when i look at the sun the reason it looks like a shiny gold coin is because there is actually a connection between the sun and shiny gold coins there's some real connection there. The quality of goldness, for example, the quality of the light that comes off of it, a quality that isn't merely dependent upon me and the contingencies of my upbringing. If that's the case, then you are living in a well and truly magical world. You're, you're living in it because if those qualities are to some extent real, or at least they're not simply things that I'm reading into a situation... If those things are, in some sense, durable, they're manipulable. They form the basis for magic. You know, if I want to, like a very typical magical kind of act, I'm, I'm making this up off the top of my head, but say I've had a series of unbroken, dreary, rainy days and I want to see the sun and maybe I do a magical working to bring the sun out, I will put a disc of polished copper upon my altar and I will create a connection between a symbolic representation of the sun and the sun itself. And I'm going to use certain qualities that I believe those things have in common. And those qualities are, from a scientific perspective, they're not qualities of the sun. <laughs> they're qualities of what I think about, but it's not a quality of the sun itself. What you're playing with is a metaphysics in which those qualities are, in sense, real. And therefore, that if you are playing with those qualities in your altar as a magician or as a, as a witch or something, um, you are actually in, in an intimacy with the thing itself. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if I even make sense to myself as I'm saying this, but I'm trying to wrap my head around this difficult-to-think idea and trying to think, what would the consequences being in a world like that? What would those consequences be? And the first thing I think of is like, oh, well, magic would be real. Yeah, well, magic would have some kind of legitimacy in such a world. It doesn't mean that all forms of magic will automatically work. It means right. that It means that what we normally, what modern science has cast aside 
of its world picture is part of the world. And this is where we're talking a little bit about a thing I wrote to you last year, right? The, the realist sacrament. I wrote this piece that, that yes. made a very sketchy argument for something like that, for quality as expression. And I'm mm-hmm. working on it now. I'm almost finished mm-hmm. second draft of that thing, finally. And it's actually growing mm. and growing, and it might be actually a short book. So I'm, I don't know. I'm just, but so it is a crazy idea. But how else can we understand the world? Ultimately, it's like, it's the idea that we take for granted when we when we go about our day. We don't perceive colors as illusions. We perceive colors as part of the world. There's a great book by um, John Searle called Seeing Things as They Are. Um, I'm not sure how well received this book was. He wrote it a few years ago in which he argues for direct realism. It's a philosophy. It's a, an epistemological model that I'm very sympathetic to because it basically says that what you see in the world isn't a translation, a cognitive translation of some unseeable thing, like of some thing that has nothing to do with with the images that you see that you are actually that consciousness is transparent that when you see something you see it as it is when you see a car it's not just a mental construct of a car caused by light by photons and light waves and whatever it's actually a car and the universe is made of those things that's a crazy idea it's really hard to wrap your head around that but that's what i'm trying to do but the the, the reason i'm doing that what, what got me on the way towards that theory, what got me going towards it was looking at works of art and trying to understand what makes art work, what makes art art. And in Stalker, again, another parallel with the color out of space from Lovecraft is the switch to color. This famous shot in Stalker where the the three main characters are sitting on a trolley that's going down this railroad, this abandoned railway that leads into the zone. And they're sitting there for, I think it's about like seven minutes at least, maybe more. The characters are just sitting there and you're, all you hear is the rhythm of the rails, you know, the clink, as the trolley moves yep. down. And slowly mm-hmm. there's this sonic treatment. We can talk about sound too in soccer. This, uh, this treatment of the yeah. sound of the rails, it becomes more and more otherworldly. And you're just looking at the faces of the characters and all of a sudden it cuts to a, a shot of a landscape the landscape they're entering and it's suddenly in color and it's like this lush lush wet like uh, diffusely lit kind of greenery right it's this beautiful shot and it just hits you it's like a punch in the face when you see that shot he's very i think very deliberately recreating the switch to color in the wizard of oz when she enters oz boom color exists but in this case there's no one there the color comes precisely in the first shot of the film where there are no humans Color comes into being in the absence of humans in a poetic way. And reality is only full, it seems, when we have given up on the illusion that we have to add something to it. That everything that we, the humans, see in reality is there before they come into the picture. That doesn't mean humans aren't important. But if they're important, their importance is diegetic. It's within the story of the universe. It's not by their metaphysical adding something into the universe to make it what it is. That everything that we think, that we impute to ourselves, everything that we try to extract from nature to give ourselves, our cognition, our brains, is already present in nature. And that we're made out of that stuff.
talk a little bit more, actually, about sound in Stalker, since you bring it up. In the Criterion Collection, the Criterion Collection came out with an edition of Stalker last year in 2017. Very, very, very good image. I mean, the first time I saw it was on a VHS tape that I rented from a, you know, video rental place. That was back when they, those things existed. Those are great. Um, and, for example, the opening shot of them in this grimy bar, like, is almost black. You can almost not make anything out. So, I mean, like, you know, they did a lot to dust off the quality of the film image to make the colors that much more vivid. On the Criterion Collection issue... Criterion Collection Edition. I just I'm trying not to say Collection Edition just because I don't like the rhyme. Oh, the Criterion fuck. version. Um. <laughs> that doesn't work the, either. The Criterion Restoration. The Criterion Rendering. That sounds like a oh, what's the name of that Release. guy who writes? Release is the word. Really cheesy thrillers like. Oh yeah, <laughs> Robert um, Ludlum. <laughs> Robert Ludlum, that's what I'm looking for, yeah. The Criterion rendition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, in Invol- the Criterion... Involves somebody getting murdered in a Bucharest hotel room. <laughs> in the Criterion release, the Blu-ray... Yes, in the Criterion release of Stalker, there's an interview with Artemyev, who was the composer who worked with Tarkovsky on a number of films. Stalker was their first film that they worked on together. And it was very interesting because he's talking about how working with Tarkovsky is different from working with anyone else. He wrote tons of music for Stalker that didn't get used. Ultimately, Tarkovsky didn't really want a lot of music in his films, the what he wanted was music that was a music of the sounds of the film. So, like, think of diegetic sound as itself a kind of music. And in this respect, he's not unique. David Lynch is like that. David Lynch has, from the very beginning, been playing around with the boundary between unpitched noise and what we call music. The third season of Twin Peaks is a particularly advanced version of this aesthetic. There's a style of underscore that's an underscore of kind of droney noise that's very, very interesting. Artemyev found himself relegated to a fairly background position, but one place that he was able to do some compositional work was in that exact scene where you start off and, okay, so the party has commandeered a little handcart that has a, a like a two-stroke motor, noisy little gasoline engine. And so when they head out from the military checkpoint that they've slipped through, you hear, you know, this very industrial sound and a particular pattern of ka-chink, 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 ka-chink. This four-stroke pattern goes up, goes down. And that basic pattern is almost like a ground bass, like a repeating motif that you're going to use as a foundation to build other sounds on. And what Artemyev does is this really cool, it's kind of a compositional effect of replacement where you're taking out some aspects of the basic sound, the the given sound, a diegetic inside the frame of the character's reality sound, that four-stroke sound of the handcart. 
And then he starts subtracting some elements from it and replacing it with others and then taking those elements that he swapped out from the original sound and swapping them out until by the end of it, and the passage goes on for several minutes, it's very abstract, but you still have buried deep in the sound, even though by now I think pretty much all of the sounds have been replaced, all the diegetic sounds have been swapped out by synthesizer sounds. You still have that ka-chink, ka-chink, Kachink, kachink, sort of as a ground, as this kind of um, cantus firmus for this musical passage. And so it's a musicalization of sound that actually is somewhat reminiscent of an early piece by the minimalist composer Steve Reich, which is known to every music student who ever took a music history class, we always cover this piece. It's called Come Out, where you have a guy saying, come out to show them. I had to, like, open the bruise up and let some of the blues blood come out to show them. And that little clip, a little audio tape clip of somebody saying, come out to show them, is looped again and again and again. Come out to show them, come out to show them, come out to show them, come out to show them. And then it starts to phase with itself. And you start off with just a guy saying, come out to show them. And by the end, you have this unrecognizable sonic abstraction. That has emerged from uh, an almost mechanical process of taking that tape recording and subjecting it to these operations. Something similar, seem, at least the acoustic end result is somewhat similar. You start with something very concrete and you end up with something very abstract, but the abstraction that still contains that little concrete referential bit of sound somehow in the heart of it, um, even if only kind of absently. That's a kind of a neat thing to want to do. It's a fairly obvious, literal, direct way that you might want to follow through on a director's idea of making diegetic sound itself be the soundtrack. But it, that's not 100% all that's there. There are also vast echoing silences uh, punctuated by the sound of a cuckoo, which, another musical reference, reminds me of a number of passages in... Gustav Mahler's symphonies, where he likes to open up kind of virtual landscapes or sonic landscapes that feel vast and immobile and empty um, and, and echoing to the sound of a lone cuckoo call. There's clearly a relationship between some of the things Tarkovsky wants to do in sound and pieces of music from a Western art tradition. So as avant-garde as it probably seemed to Artemiev, this idea of trying to create a soundtrack that's mostly not music at all. Nevertheless, there's also sort of a way in which he's clearly, he being Tarkovsky, is clearly reacting to an artistic tradition, a cultivated tradition. Now, where that comes out all the more clearly is in a, a three moments in the film where you hear little snippets of classical music. So one is right at the beginning where the wife of the stalker has this complete conniption, just a fit, 
where she's lying on the floor, thrashing around, sobbing uncontrollably. And then uh, for some reason or other, we hear, oh, what is it? Is it? Um, Tannhauser. It's, like, it's the overture. Oh, yeah, that's right. The Tannhauser overture. Just yeah. a little bit of it. It fades in and it fades out, and it also is layered in with the sound of a train. A train, a train and, yeah. And from a realistic point of view, I think you're you're given to understand that the stalker and his family live in a shit apartment in the cheapest part of town, which is, of course, going to be the bit that's right by train tracks, right? This happens a couple more times. There's right at the end when they're just sort of sitting around defeated and not going into the room. They're on the threshold of the room, but they never go in. Sorry, spoiler the camera, as if memory serves, it pokes down into the water and you see fish swimming around and you see this sort of it's like oil or some kind of some kind of substance spreading on the surface. And just for a second, you hear Bolero, Ravel's Bolero. And then it and then it disappears. And then you transition back to the, the grimy bar that we saw in the very first shot. And then the last shot is of the monkey pushing those glasses down the table and you hear a little snatch. Again, it almost sounds like somebody tuning a radio in and then detuning it pretty quickly. A little snatch of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy. Artemyev uh, mentions it in this interview in the Criterion Collection. He says, yeah, he wanted to have little sounds of not even really great or particularly appropriate classical music, just kind of light classics, the kinds of things that you would hear on the radio. Well, in this day and age, I don't think Beethoven's Ninth Symphony would be considered by anybody a light classic, but you kind of get what he's saying. These are pieces of classical music that were part of the common currency of cultural life in the Soviet Union in the 1970s. And it's a little mysterious as to why they're there. There is a generic explanation for it, which Artemyev supplies. He says that Tarkovsky's general feeling about music and film has to do with his observation that cinema is a very young art form. That, you know, at the time he made Stalker, it was not even 100 years old. And Tarkovsky's feeling was that you need to connect to a much deeper and older stratum of artistic creation. And in order to do that, he would put snatches of classical music, especially Bach, in his films. And so there's a choral prelude from the Orgelbüchlein of J.S. Bach that you hear in uh, Solaris, for instance. In The Sacrifice, you hear Erbarmadish, which is this heart-rending aria from the St. Matthew Passion, also by J.S. Bach. Actually, you have a little quick flash of it in the zone uh, where the cynical writer starts to whistle. And actually what he's whistling is a little twist of melody from Erbarmadish. And so it's kind of, it's kind of, um, that's kind of interesting, actually. And it gets back to something you were saying about the writer, that in some ways he seems the most cynical and the most resistant to being changed by his experience, and yet he seems to be the only one who really sees it clear. Um, anyway. Can, can I jump in here? Because uh, you've, you've awoken me to something. Um, All right. There's, there's, uh, this is something I, I was half-formed before we started today, but now it's kind of coming together. So, again, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a theory of but what I think Tarkovsky is saying. I don't actually care whether Tarkovsky meant to say it or not. It's just a pattern that I'm seeing, and maybe it has some value. So the sound of trains is important in Stalker. It, 
we never see a full, oh yeah, we do see a full on train at one point. The, the sound of, of a train comes back on several occasions. The first time we hear a train in the film is at the very, very beginning. The camera is dollying over the bed of the stalker and his family. They all sleep in the same bed. And the camera is hovering over a table and you hear a train and the train is making the room shake and a glass of water is moving across the table. Now, we, we can note immediately the parallel here with the final scene where Monkey, the daughter, is move, making the, the glass move across the table with, with her mind. And then we hear a train once she's done that. And... Uh, the train comes back on a few occasions. So there's, and the train happens when the, the wife has her paroxysm on the ground. And there's a hint there that the kid is causing that because the shot yeah. right before the stalker walks out of frame and you can see in the far background, you can see monkey staring at her mother. And then the mother falls into this conniption fit. And uh, since we know, having seen the film once before, that monkey has psychic psionic powers, then we could... Maybe that explains her otherwise absolutely inexplicable conniption fit at that moment. So let's let's see the sound of train as a symbol of industry, of technology, because technology is a big theme in Stalker. They talk about science and technology quite a bit. The dialogues between the writer and the professor bear on that. The runes in the, in the zone are all about that. And then we can counterpoint that with the snippets of classical music that accompany the sound of the train as the writer part and his whistling that melody kind of cements that parallel. What we hear in that moment is technology and culture represented by the writer and professor coming together yes. and producing something. At first, it's the culture and technology that are making the glass move. But at the end, Monkey is able to make the glass move outside of technology and culture, like just with her own power. This internalization of technology and it's the, the dialectic by which culture and technology will bring forth a new human being, a kind of hopeful creation of the ubermensch that Monkey represents. I think you could read that into the film. There is a kind of dialectical transformation that's happening at the zone where nature and culture and technology and, and art are coming together to bring something into being that exceeds everything that was before. So I, I think that's an interesting thing because... One essay that I personally love and that I think you could watch Stalker and you can, you can analyze it in the light of that essay is Heidegger's piece, The Question Concerning Technology. In that essay, Heidegger talks about technology in terms of the dichotomy in Greek thought between techne and poiesis. So techne is this knowing how, art in the general sense of building things and making things. But what, what Heidegger says in that, in that essay, which seems on the surface, it condemns technology because it's saying technology transforms the world into what he calls standing reserve, into just like usable resource. But in doing so, in that transforming the world into standing reserve, technology reveals, even as it conceals, typically Heideggerian, a, a saving power. And that saving power is poiesis. So if we, if we imagine poiesis, which is the, where we get the word poetics, this force of creation that is at work through man, that isn't reducible to man or to humanity, but that is at work through humanity. And that in Stalker, there's this vision of history bringing forth something ahistorical, something that changes everything. Um, and I find mm. that the, the character of Monkey at the end comes to represent or symbolize that thing that Stalker has failed to achieve 
uh, Stalker being, I guess, the representative of, of the arts in the film, of, of the poet. And um, art, philosophy, and science are conspiring blindly to make their innermost wish, of which they can know nothing, come true. One question that comes up repeatedly is, like, can you live in the zone? And that, to me, is a really important question to ask about zones generally. It comes up every time you're contemplating a true zone. Like, Dahlgren is truly a zone. And that's a big question. Can you live in Bologna? If you can, how? You know, when they get to the, to the zone, the stalker says, home again. Like, home again at last, which is really interesting. And it makes and it becomes clear throughout the film that the zone is the only place on earth where he feels understood, where he feels welcomed, where he feels at home. And yet, he points out right from the beginning, oh, there's no one here. Nobody can live in the zone. It's impossible. And yet, towards the end, he's beginning to muse aloud, like, oh, maybe I could just, you know, bring my wife and my daughter and we could live here. Maybe we could live here. But you have the sort of sense that, like, that's wishful thinking, that he knows ultimately that there's no way that he, he can visit the zone, but he doesn't get to keep it. He doesn't get to live there. And this, to me, is a powerful, uh, a powerful thing about art. If you think about the artwork as a zone, every true artwork is a little zone unto itself, which, by the way, I totally buy that. I think that's really true. You can visit, but you can't live there. You can't live in Parsifal, for instance, the opera by Richard Wagner, much as I might like to. You can't live in the Sistine Chapel, right? right? And yet there's something about these zones that... One of the things I wanted to say earlier in our conversation is that it is an attribute of all zones that they can be entered that's like almost the most important thing about a zone. A zone isn't a zone if you can't enter it, if you can't be there, at least for some short time. But the other thing about a zone is that it also seems to be unlivable. You can enter it, but you certainly can't stay. You can't, and you can't and remain so, the same after you've been in it. Yeah, it changes. And, if you, and if you did stay, it wouldn't be you anymore. That's something that Dahlgren plays with a lot is people who become so weirdly transformed. Like the first thing that happens in Dahlgren is a woman turns into a tree and you're given absolutely no context for any of this stuff happening. So the whole thing unfolds like some kind of crazy dream. It's more dreamlike than almost anything else I've ever read. Anyway, so like how can you live in a place where people can just turn into trees randomly for no reason anyone will ever discover? These zones, you can't live there but you have to try or you have to enter them. This weird uh, push me, pull you, there's a kind of an unresolved and unresolvable tension at the heart of every zone. They're impossible spaces. And I love what you were saying because it implies that monkey, like what's the real mutation that takes place? It's not that she turns into a literal monkey because clearly our, um, Tarkovsky shit canned that particular idea. It would look stupid. Right. If he had tried to be literal and stick to the novel, it would have looked stupid. But what he did instead, by giving us a totally normal looking nine year old girl and then having her move objects with her mind like that, that feels like from a certain point of view, like monster horror, chiller, thriller theater, like, oh, my God, that's the big reveal. 
she can move a glass with her mind. <laughs> like, who even gives a shit, right? And yet, it's thrilling metaphysically because it's just like, no, her mutation is that she's a person who can live in the zone. She, she's, she is of the zone. She's like a little bit of the zone, in fact, that found itself outside the zone. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, exactly. I know exactly what you're saying. And uh, I, I have, I've always loved that scene. I've always been very emotionally affected by that scene at the end where she moves the glasses. I don't know why, but it reminds me of the scene in The Shining where uh, the meat locker is magically unlocked and we get this confirmation that the forces at work in the Overlook Hotel are not just in Jack Torrance's head. And in fact, there's an interesting parallel actually between those two films. They're both about a child who has, quote unquote, the shining, who is able to see through the illusions that their parents take for granted or believe are real and are able to see through things. And the films came out one year apart from each other. So there's something there, hmm. maybe. Um, hmm. What's interesting to me is that exactly that monkey can live in the zone. And here we have, <laughs> as is typical of really great works of art is that they turned out to have a almost farcically literal prophetic power. And in the, in the case of stalker, it's the catastrophe at Chernobyl, the resonances or the correspondence of the images of the zone and the images of Chernobyl after it was abandoned because of the, the nuclear meltdown that happened there are uncanny. First of all, it's the same region on the planet, but also the way that things have played out, there's a name, the, 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 the affected zone, the Chernobyl area there, that, that disaster area, which is still, I think, uh, you can't go in to this day, although there are stalkers oh, yeah. who'll take you there. Um, that, it's called the zone of, I can't remember what it's called, but it has this really cool name. It's called, it's a zone. And if you see images of it, it looks like the zone from Stalker. And uh, it is, in essence, just to tack that onto my, what I was saying earlier, the meltdown at Chernobyl shows us the unknowable dimension of the technologies we create as humans. The, the splitting of the atom, which made such a catastrophe possible, had consequences and effects. We talked about this in the Garmon Bosia episode that we couldn't possibly calculate, that we couldn't possibly, that, that, that science and technology are doing something with us that we don't understand, that we can't even know. It's making our innermost wish come true, but that innermost wish is something we can know nothing about. And Chern mm. Chernobyl, in a sense, is this kind of like symbol of that, of the, the unforeseen consequences of such a rational process, you know, of such a, uh, you know, just adding one thing in front of another kind of process. So, you know, that's an interesting thought because it would suggest that on some level, the weird wasteland of Chernobyl is our deepest wish. Yeah. The world without us. That's a weird thought because I think if you asked anybody like... Do you think it's cool that there's this huge area in the Ukraine that's like irradiated and nobody can live there? Does that sound like fun to you? I'm pretty sure most people would say no, right? So right. I can imagine a skeptical listener being like, yeah, JF, full of shit as usual. Because <laughs> um, no, that's not our innermost wish. 
that's an interesting thought. Maybe it is. If it is our okay, well, let's say that the irradiated wasteland around Chernobyl is our innermost wish. And I I may be misinterpreting you, but I'm misinterpreting you on purpose. Like imagine that Chernobyl is a dream. Like dreams are weird in that way that like you can have a dream about the fulfillment of a desire. It's possible to have a dream that's all about you seeking the f fulfillment of your ultimate desire. And it's quite possible in a dream that you have no idea what it is you're looking for. In fact, that seems more characteristic of dreams than otherwise, right? It would be quite imaginable to have a dream where you're chasing or you're on a quest looking for your innermost desire. And at the end of your quest, the desire that you find is this vast ruined nuclear plant with a, a huge concrete cap over top of it and utterly empty for miles around except for increasingly mutated wild animals. Like, okay, how would you interpret that dream? You, you wake up and you're like, wow, that was my heart's desire? How do you interpret this? Well, I, I think that in, in this interpretation, we're in very good company. We're in the company of Sigmund Freud. And his death drive theory was that the innermost wish of the human organism is to return to the inanimate. And you could read that in a very kind of uh, cynical, materialist way. But you can also read it as the human wants to be reconciled with the world that the human wants to belong in the world, home at last, instead of, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Mm. There's that pair. Home at last means I am at home in this planet that I cannot, that, that has nothing to do with what the uh, kind of programmed, evolved human expectations about the world are. It, it's just, it is what it is in itself. I mean, what better way is there to interpret a myth like Eden, the fall from the garden, than to see it as we've become alienated from the world. We've become alienated from the world by the rise of consciousness. And our innermost wish is to return to that Edenic state where we are reconciled and at one with the world. And if you look at images of Chernobyl, what will strike you more than anything is the immense, incredible beauty of this place, this quiet place, filled with human, the remnants of human civilization, but slowly dissolving back into the primal nature of the planet itself, just melting back into its, its original state. In a sense, we're already there all the time. You know, the world is already overgrown. All of our efforts to stave off nature's power to swallow us back up, are, these are just kind of games we play to pretend. Whereas in fact, even when you're standing in Times Square, I mean, essentially speaking, you're in the middle of the rainforest. You're, the forces of culture are just forces of nature that we have shaped to look a certain way, that we've arranged to respond to certain conceptual categories. In fact, the cancer growing in your liver is there. And that's the rainforest. That's the volcano. That's the meteorite striking planets randomly. And how do we reconcile ourselves with that? How do we accept that? Uh, how do we become not just contemplators of the forces that move glasses across tables or meteorites across space? How do we become those forces? How do we restore ourselves back to that plane of primal force? If 
you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.